Believe it or not, we are in uh, part nine, which is the second to the last part of our Colossians series. So, all right, coming down to the last stretch here. I have thoroughly enjoyed it, uh, and I hope you have as well. Um, kids are dismissed. See, I saw it here, and I remembered. They're already gone. And out of here. <laughs> all right. Well, let's... Uh, Let's go ahead and jump in. I wanted to just recap um, quickly. Jaron, do me a favor. Would you grab the little remote that's by the iMac there? I forgot to get it. Thank you. It's in the little pouch. Uh, I just wanted to just touch on last week. Uh, we um, kind of finished focused on one particular list, that uh, list of things we're to put off. Thank you, sir. <clears throat> Uh, so if you were, if you remember from last week, Paul was writing and reminding the Colossian believers of the things that they should have put off or put to death, and that when you had died with Christ, these things should be put to death, and then you are resurrected with Him into new life. And what we're going to focus on this morning is actually what things we should be putting on. But I just wanted to just recap because we didn't get to the second kind of little list that he had. We, we did look at the first list. If you remember, it, it really focused on um, sexual sins and the evil desires of our hearts <clears throat> and minds and how we are to put those things off. And, but the second list, which came after that, uh, we didn't get to, but I wanted to just briefly recap on it. Uh, because it actually, it shifts focus to those things that we looked at, and it shifts to the things that come out of our mouths. I think this is important because I think this is often the things that really cause problems and rifts in relationships, and especially within the body of Christ, within this church family right here and all other bodies of Christ. This is what often will cause division it causes offense, and it causes it wreaks havoc within the body of Christ if we are not diligently putting these things off and putting them to death. So I, I just wanted to look at it real briefly, but I also wanted to mention that uh, if you re- remember a few weeks ago, we, we looked at Jesus' words, and he made it very clear that it's not what goes into our mouths which defile us. It's not what you eat. That, bring, that will defile you, but it's what comes out of our mouths that defile us. And he, he says it very clearly. We'll just look at uh, his words real quick here. Um, let me turn this on. Jesus says, The good person, out of the good treasure, in other words, the things he has stored up in his heart, out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And Jesus <clears throat> says this in several places, but you know, actually several of the New Testament writers put an emphasis on our words and what comes out of our mouths. And uh, uh, James talks about our tongue being that which is so difficult to tame. And if you've lived life for any number of years, you realize that the truth in this, this is, it is very difficult to tame the tongue. 
Um, and when you, when you die with Christ and you are brought into new life with him, this is one of the first things that the Holy Spirit will begin to work on in, in your life is taming that tongue. And so that's what Paul looked at. That's what he kind of focused in on on this second list. We're just going to read it quickly together. This is what he said. He said, but now you must put them all away, having said the things he said about sexual sins, and now he focuses on these. And here's what these things are that we are to put away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So I've underlined those things there. All of them tend to be associated with things with what comes out of your mouth. Now, anger um, doesn't, you know, that can manifest in a lot of different ways, but typically you will see anger come out first. It'll overflow from a person's mouth. What's abundant in their heart will overflow right out of their mouth. Wrath, you may look at this as extreme anger or rage. Um, You better believe when this comes forth out of the heart, it's going to be coming, bursting forth out of the mouth as well. Uh, Malice, that's that's ill intent, uh, intentions to do, uh, to have ill will towards someone. Often that's done through the mouth. Things like gossip and, and things like that, that kind of malice uh, often comes out of the, the mouth. Slander, to slander someone is to harm their good name by what you are saying. And obscene talk, obviously, um, talking in such a way that's obscene and vulgar, um, that's coming out of your mouth. And then finally, Paul says, do not lie to one another. Lying is a clear indicator of what's in the heart when you when you say when you speak lies and listen children of God children of light should not be that type of lies should not be coming forth from our mouth so that's one of the things we really have to put to death is learning to be children of truth God is a God of truth he always wants us to be speaking truth and honesty. When we speak, no one should be have to question whether or not we're speaking truthfully. That really should that should be put to death in us, so that people we associate with, whether it's our own brothers and sisters or whether it's anyone out in the world, should not have to question whether or not what we are saying is actually the truth. I, I hate when there's someone that has proven their, themselves to be untruthful. I hate when I have to try to figure out, are they telling the truth or not? And we should not be like that at all. And, and uh, so this, these are the things that Paul is um, saying, really, these have to be put to death. Now, it doesn't mean that when we come to Christ and we are uh, born in, into his kingdom and we have this new life, it doesn't mean all of these things are boom, gone. That's why Paul is referring to the things that we need to be putting to death, taking these things off. He's not even expecting them to have have been remedied immediately, but he does admonish us to deal with these things, take action, 
put them off, put them to death. So this is that a part of the process of God making us into a new creation and transforming us through the renewing of our minds so that these things are no longer something we're wearing. These these things are not defining us. All right, that's great stuff. And um, we really could spend a whole series just on words and the power of them um, for either life or death and all of the stuff um, that, that Scripture puts emphasis in regards to your mouth and what comes out of your mouth. But we don't have time for that. So we're going to move on. All right, so that's the uh, what we had finished up on uh, last week. So let's move into what I want to cover this week. So we're going to look at uh, starting with, well, let's just read the whole passage together. So this is starting with verse 12. We're going to read verse verses 12 through 17 together, and then we'll come back and we'll dig in a little deeper on these. And this is what Paul writes. All right, remember, we're talking about now what we're going to be putting on. Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Good stuff. All right, well, let's... let's Look at that a little more closely. Um, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has complained against one another. So, So you see the shift now Paul is making to how we now relate to one another. And this was such a... a a focus and emphasis of Jesus himself, how we treat one another and how we love one another. And Paul continues on this theme in much, much, much of his writing, much, many of his letters, he, he admonishes us um, to, to, to pay attention to how we're treating one another. So here he says to put on these things as part of our our new resurrected life. And he refers to believers here as God's chosen ones who are holy and beloved. And even though, remember, he has not been to this church personally, evidently he is confident enough by the the report coming from Epaphras of these believers, he's confident enough to, to say these are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So they are set apart from all of the other people in Colossae. 
That's what it means to be holy, God's holy people. It means they've been set apart. Do you realize that if you are God's child, you have been set apart from everyone else in the world? And God has no, he is not shy or bashful about that. He makes it very clear that his people are to be holy as he is holy. He is like no other. We're to be holy. We're to be set apart from the rest of the world as well. So he confidently states this about these believers. He then lists some of the things that these believers should now be putting on, as we mentioned, with their new self. And he mentions how it's being renewed. We're being renewed into the image of Christ and the image of our Creator. Let's, let's just take a look at these individually. I actually love, you know, I told you I'm a kind of a word geek. I love to kind of get into words. I, if I often, this is not anything to do with sermon prep, but just life in ger- general, I often am going to definitions, looking at dictionaries. Because I want to know that when I use a word, I'm using it accurately. Sharon's smiling. I knew she'd be smiling during this. She's like this too. I, I would like to know that I'm using a word accurately. So I often am looking up the definition of a word to make sure that even though I have, I'm 50 years old and I have been speaking English since I was very little, I actually started with Portuguese. I'll have you know. I was born in Brazil. Uh, but that was only until I was two, and then I started learning English. I don't remember any Portuguese. Anyway, the English that I've been speaking, I've been doing it for a long time, but still, and this is partly my personality, I want to be sure I am speaking it accurately and properly and rightly. So I often am looking up words in the dictionary. So that's what we're going to do, because I find it very helpful to reinforce the language that we use and the words that we use to reinforce, to make sure we're using them correctly. Now, granted, words change. Meanings change over time. And sometimes you just, as frustrating as it can be when you hear these young people using words that did not <laughs> used to mean that. But um, that's, the, that's the way. I'll never forget some of you who are as old as I am, but back when the word fat became the trendy word and when something was fat that was good that was like awesome and and you described something that was like saying cool it was fat and I used to wear fat laces anybody wear fat laces in in their shoes come on man please somebody nobody here wore fat laces all right Kevin yes thank you you saved me I not only wore fat laces now, fat laces were literally fat laces. They were really fat, and you would, you know, run DMC and, you know, Adidas and all that was in. So I used to wear it. But I would color coordinate my shoelaces with my outfit and my socks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And my <laughs> Thank you. That's my wife. Yeah. K-Swiss. Remember K-Swiss? All right, I'm moving on. So we're going to look at these words together. So compassionate heart. So compassion, compassionate heart would mean a heart that, that basically shows and, and gives compassion. So here's what compassion means. A strong feeling of sympathy and sadness for another person's suffering or misfortune and 
a desire to help. Now, keep in mind, you can look at many different dictionaries and get variations of the definition of word, varying definitions, but most of them are going to be fairly consistent with one another. Um, one thing to keep in mind about compassion and how this is different from, let's say, sympathy or empathy is that compassion compels someone to do something about it. You can have sympathy for someone, but do nothing to help them. You can have empathy and understand from their shoes what they're going through, but do nothing to help their situation. However, compassion is different. Compassion is to have strong feelings of sympathy that then drive you to or uh, compel you to do something about it. And I think that's an important distinction because Paul says here that we should have compassionate hearts. So we should be able to strongly feel sympathy towards someone to the extent that it wants, it makes us want to do something to relieve their suffering. And remember, when he's, speak, when he's talking about these, these things we should be putting on, he's really focused on the family of God. This is where he means mostly for this to be applied within our family, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we read these things, this is how we should be relating them to our lives, is who I am here in this, in this church fellowship with. These are the people to, towards whom I should be putting these things on and using them in my life and, and applying them in my life. So compassionate hearts, kindness well, a definition of kindness would be something like this, the quality of being generous, helpful, and caring about other people, or an act of showing this quality. And, you know, kindness, and that, actually kindness can be done without compassion. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because we should be kind people regardless of how we feel about a situation. We've been called to be kind to one another and to others. And so regardless of your feelings, whether compassion is there or not, whether sympathy is there or not, we should be kind to one another. Kindness. Let's move on to humility. I love this definition. Listen to this. Humility. Humility, the quality of not being proud because you are aware of your bad qualities. When I read that, I was like, that is brilliant. That is, the, that is a wonderful definition. Because I find that the lack of humility means there's a lack of this person realizing and recognizing the bad qualities in themselves. And Scripture admonishes us to look in a mirror Stop looking at one another and look in a mirror at the flaws and the blemishes. Paul talks to believers about not uh, considering yourself more important than you should. And so there's this theme of being sure that you are keeping your feet on the ground, so to speak. God commands us to humble ourselves. Because if we don't humble ourselves as his children, 
A good, loving father will then humble us because he loves us. And pride and lack of humility is very dangerous. And so uh, I, I, I just love this because, you know, I, I think you should jot this down and look upon it often. Humility is the quality of not being proud because you are aware of your bad qualities. And that's a great, a great way for us to remain humble is to remember the bad qualities about ourselves. And even to the extent of sometimes it's good to remember where we have failed. I know a lot of uh, believers or teachers might say, don't ever think uh, on or bring up your past sins. God has, has chosen to forget, to forget those. And, and that is true. And I understand what they're saying. We're not to dwell on those. But there is a healthy there's that something healthy about remembering. I mean, in Scripture, it reminds us all the time, remember what the people of Israel did. Remember how they forgot God. Remember how they sinned in this way. Remember those things for your own good. And I think it is for our own good when we are able to remember what, what we are capable of doing and, and remember the things that you have done. And remember your bad qualities, because it will keep you humble. And of all things and characteristics in the Bible, the one that, could, that it really should be the scariest to us is pride. Because that's what God defines or describes as the thing that he will resist. He will resist a prideful person. So without humility... You, you stand the chance of being resisted by God. And that is, we cannot afford that. So humility is hugely important. Well, let's move on. Meekness. I couldn't decide between these two, so I put them both in here. So the first one says, to be meek is to be quiet, gentle, and not willing to argue or express your opinions in a forceful way. Now remember, when, you're read, when we're reading these, let's think about one another and how we are towards one another. Quiet, gentle, and not willing to argue or express your opinions in a forceful way. Listen, this was challenging for me to prepare this, but so good for me as well. Um, so this, uh, I'm in this boat with you guys of saying, ouch, you know, that's, that's cutting close to home. The second one says, enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Both of those are just beautiful in thinking about one another and how we need to apply these things. Um, I come from a, you know, a family who was very opinionated and very outspoken about their opinions. We got my dad a mug one time. I shared this the other day and we loved it. It was perfect for him. It, it basically it said, everyone is entitled to my opinion. <laughs> he said it right there on the front. It was just brilliant. It fit my dad really well. And we laugh and chuckle at it. But that, you know, that was one of those traits of our family that really we, re we needed to work on a little more. Because to be meek, as Scripture is you know, calling us to be, um, we have to be able to um, not be willing to not argue. Be willing to not express our opinions in a forceful way. I remember reading something in a, in a book I was reading 
this Christian author wrote, and it just it hit me right between the eyes. And it was so simple. He said, you do not have to have an opinion on everything. And he's talking to God's people, and especially the people who, like me and my family, tend to have opinions on everything. And it was almost like freeing to me that that's so true. I actually don't have to have an opinion on everything. And I've been working on stuff like this for years, and i got a long ways to go. But it's a, it's a freeing thing. So to be meek, um, those things, yeah, that's very, very important and valuable in the family of God when we're trying to be and live in, in unity and harmony with one another. Well, let's look at patience. i got two here. First one says, the ability to wait or to continue doing something despite difficulties or to suffer without complaining or becoming annoyed. And the second one kind of brings it home even more. It says, able to remain calm and not become annoyed when waiting for a long time or, here's it, here it is, when dealing with problems or difficult people. Marianne, did you elbow, did I see you elbow Dale? Is that, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, this, is, this brings it home. That little last part right there, when dealing with problems or difficult people. Because think about it. In, the, in, in not only the family of God, any family, your own, your own family. This is, this is where it really becomes challenging to be patient. Is when someone is really annoying you. And they are a difficult person. So in, our, in the family of God, we're running into this all the time. But we have to learn patience. And patience doesn't just mean being willing to wait in the queue for Chick-fil-A. The queue, the line. See, that's my English, England, British side coming out of it. Waiting in the line for Chick-fil-A. No, it means to be able to have patience when dealing with an annoying person. And listen, can I just say this? I am an annoying person. You are an annoying person. Together, we are annoying people. It's okay to, uh, to, to say I, I can be annoying. I know that I can be annoying, but I, I'm working on being less annoying. And I think that many of us need to work on being less annoying. But we need to work also on being able to be patient with those who are annoying or difficult because we all are. That's my point. We all are annoying to one another in different ways, but that's not where we're to stay. We're to go beyond that and put on the things like patience to where we're actually not annoying to each other anymore. We actually begin to love one another and appreciate our differences because that's how that's what makes up a body uh, is to have a variety of members that God has gifted in different ways and he has wired and made us in different ways and that becomes a beautiful thing to have that variety because listen some people are going to lean towards and receive better from certain personalities than others you know i think it's very good and healthy in a church to have a variety of teachers that have different styles and ways of delivering God's truth because not everyone's going to be able to receive from me. 
And that's okay. I, I, I am, I've learned uh, that's okay. I can't expect everyone to do that. And the same with Phil. Not everyone's going to be able to re receive from Phil or Kevin or whoever is up here teaching. That's why having, having that variety in God's kingdom and in, 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 his, in his body is a, is a good thing. Because we want to be able to reach as many people as we can. We want to be able to teach and it be received from as many as, as possible to receive his truth. And so there's going to be some variations, which is a, is a good thing. But patience is uh, being able to remain calm or being able to continue doing something despite the difficulties. And this is so um, good to remember because here's what typically happens in a church body, in a church family. Someone says something because they've not learned to be less annoying, and it annoys a person. And this person, instead of learning to be patient and deal with this annoying person and you know, persist or persevere through that, they said, I'm done, and they're out of here. And that swinging door that we see in so many churches just goes to swinging again, and they're off to the next church, where guess what? They have annoying people too. You are not going to be able to get away from annoying people in this world. But we are to be able to rise above that as God's people, to be able to put off the things we should put off and put on the things that we should put on so that even with people you've not even known for very long, but there's that unity in the Spirit even with those people, you're able to be patient with them and love them regardless of some annoyances. And that's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's the beauty of us obeying the commands of Christ to love one another and to put these things on. And that's how we are to be defined by these characteristics. So moving on to uh, forbearance. Now, I used forbearance just to nut, nutshell it into one word, but your translation, uh, like King James, uses forbearance. It's not a word we use very often anymore, um, but your translation may say something like forgiving, excuse me, bearing with one another or forbearing one another. And so what this means is, this first one here says, to be patient or self-controlled when subject to annoyance or provocation, similar to patience. Um, but it's, it's being able to, and if you look up uh, this, this Greek word, it, it also reflects a standing with, and, uh, and, and almost like a standing together in this. But it's a being willing to, um, to be patient and self-controlled when dealing with annoyance. And provocation. The other one uh, definition says, someone who is forbearing behaves in a calm and sensible way at a time when they would have a right to be very upset or angry. And man, this, this word right here, just right. This, the culture we live in now is so, is such, we're such an entitled culture and people and we're all about our rights our rights our rights well listen god has something different for us and it's not all about your rights it's not all about your what you're entitled to 
Because what you're entitled to is death. The wages of our sin means we are entitled to death. That is our right. We have no other rights because we're dead as far as God is concerned. A holy God. Sin brings death. So we have no rights. And so this, we're to be a people who are very different than what we see around us in the culture. We're to be a people who have learned to put to death not only all these things that we know are bad, but the things that we think we're entitled to. Putting them to death. Putting our rights to death. Now listen, as Americans, this is very difficult. And I will be the first to say, this is very difficult for me. And you see it out on the road all the time. Road rage is a real thing. It's not just on YouTube. It's like out there. You run into it constantly. And what is it? It's, a, it's an entitlement. It's a right. I have a right to this lane. I have a right to be first. I have a right to be in front of you. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous. One thing I loved about England. Why am I saying so much about England? One thing I loved about England. Now, this is good because it's... You get to see, that's why it's so good for us to travel and get out of America, because we can actually see that there's actually a whole other rest of the world out there, and people are not all like us, and they don't always think like us. Anyway, in England, they cooperate with one another on the roads so much better than we do here. There's a sense of cooperation. There's a sense of, we're all in this together, Let's make this work. Now, how brilliant is that? And here, it's like, oh my goodness, everybody's a lone ranger. Everybody is, this is my road. Get out of the way. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. But you see it. You see people get so angry and uptight. And part of my teaching my children to drive, and listen, I'm on my fifth and last one. It's been a long journey. You see what it has done to me. But I got one more to go. Abby, make it easy on me, please. But part of half of what I'm teaching is trying to help them avoid all of these angry people out in the world and the rage that takes over them if you do something to, you know, and so... I'm, I'm teaching them how to be a defensive driver, not to try to claim your rights to the road or anything like that. Always be a defensive driver. And am I still coming through? Yeah, okay, sorry. Um, so part of that is just learning to just give up our rights with some things. We have to be okay with dying to some of that. Um, so one more driver to go. Pray for me. All right, moving on. Forgiving one another. So forgiveness. To decide that you will not be angry with someone who has offended, upset, or harmed you. So you, you, you see this theme that Paul's getting at? All of these things have to do with how we're relating to one another. The second one says to give up resentment against or the desire to punish the person. I'm talking about the person who has offended you, whatever that offense may be. 
And then lastly, to give up all claim to punish or exact penalty for an offense or to cancel a debt. Now, we really should spend weeks on this one alone, forgiveness. The reason I say that is because the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his Father has, have made this hugely important. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring this home to you using Jesus' words. So don't get mad at me for what Jesus said. I'm only the messenger. Okay? But when it comes to, to unforgiveness towards someone else, this is a serious offense to the Lord. And it becomes, listen, it becomes a barrier to us <laughs> receiving God's forgiveness. Which means, if we are not receiving God's forgiveness, we are still under condemnation. You cannot claim we, therefore, we are, um, we are therefore no longer under condemnation because we're in Christ because we have chosen to do what Christ has said not to do. And that is, if you withhold forgiveness from someone, your heavenly Father will withhold forgiveness towards you. And to the extent that the parable that Jesus uses to explain this principle is, is a somewhat of a shocking one, especially that it's coming out of Jesus' mouth. But basically, it's the parable of the, um, of the unforgiving debtor, if you want to call it that. Your Bible may headline it in different ways, but it's from Matthew uh, 18, excuse me, 19. 18. It's in Matthew 18. I wrote it in two different places, and I wrote it wrong on one. But basically, it's this. There's a king. This is Jesus telling the story. I'm just going to nutshell it. There's a king who decides to bring to account all of his debts. In other words, those who owe him a debt. They have a debt. They owe him. He decides to bring them to account. It's time. Time to pay up. And one particular debtor comes... And the king is wanting payment for this debt. And this is such an extreme debt. This, this debtor, this person is unable to pay. And so the next thing is for them, I say them, he and his family uh, to, to be imprisoned or he to be imprisoned until this debt is paid. But this man begs of this king, please give me more time. Please, I will pay the debt. Please, would you just give me more time? Please don't put us in prison. And the king, being a merciful king, not only does he extend more time, he completely forgives the debt. Completely. Wipes it clean. Tells the man, you are forgiven of this debt. Fully. There's nothing more you need to pay back. It allows him to go. It's, an, it's incredible, the, the, the mercy that was extended to this, to this one. But then, this very same person who received the mercy from this king 
turns around, goes to another person who owes them money, a much smaller debt, and grabs him by the collar and threatens him. He says, pay now. You owe me, pay now. The guy cannot pay it. The guy pleads with him, give him more time, please. But the, the debtor, that man, throws him in jail until he's able to pay the debt. And the servants of the king hear about this and realize what has happened. And disturbed by this, they go back and report it to this king. And this king is furious and brings this man back and says, what have you done? I have forgiven such a great debt that you owed me. And you turn around and hold this smaller debt to account and are unwilling to forgive this person and you throw them in jail? No, 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 no. You, I am reinstating the debt and you are going to prison where you will stay and you will be tortured until you pay every last penny. Now listen, that is the parable Jesus shares. He tells this story, and we're just going to read the very last part of it, because this is where Jesus is ending the parable, and then he breaks into narration mode, explaining what he has just said. And he, he says this, Jesus is talking. So at the end of the story, he's saying, uh, sorry, let me get ahead here. Then the king, remember, Jesus is talking here, telling the story. Then the king called in the man he had forgiven and said, You evil servant, I forgave you that tremendous debt because you pleaded with me. Shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? Then the angry king sent the man to prison to be tortured until he had paid his entire debt. And now Jesus breaks out of storytelling mode and he basically summarizes what he's saying and he says this, that's what my heavenly father will do to you if you refuse to forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. Listen, that could not be more urgent of a passage of scripture and, and we often gloss over this whole thing of forgiveness like it's really no big deal. Listen, that, what Jesus is saying here, is a big deal. And you'll have people argue, oh, Jesus wouldn't do that. He doesn't really mean that the Father would think of us or, or treat us that way. Really? Are you not going to take God's word at face value? Have you read his history of, of who he is? And when he warns, he means business? No, 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 no. I'm going to take Jesus' words at face value. And if he uses a parable like this that so clearly communicates the way the Father feels about forgiveness and unforgiveness... No, no, we, we need to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. He didn't choose some little mamsy-pamsy story to try to get everyone to have feel-good feelings to forgive. No, no, no. No, this is serious. Now, you can debate whether or not this going to prison and being tortured. Now, if you look at the Greek word, it's talking about a, a, a 
jailer who tortures. Okay, this is what it, it's talking. This is what the the Greek means. So it'll say either tortured or tormented in your translation, and that's accurate. And and Jesus, now so what you can debate whether well is this is this does this mean now or does this mean when judgment day comes? The king said uh, it's time to bring uh, everyone to account that my debt the debts to account. So you could look at it as this is in the future. This is judgment day. Okay. Or you could look at this as oh this this is this is now what. What loving father would not discipline his child when they need disciplined in order for them to be brought back into a place of acceptance before the Lord? So I think, I think we need to look at this both ways. Yes, this means in the future, on Judgment Day, if we've got unforgiveness towards someone else, God have mercy. But he has already spoken very clearly. But I also think this means now. I think this means now for us. I think this is so serious that Jesus highlights it many times. That if you are unwilling to forgive, your heavenly father will withhold his forgiveness from you. And Jesus uses that. I mean, he, he uses this very strong language of that's what my heavenly father will do to you so that's heavy but i think rightfully so anything that that can become a barrier to our forgiveness and this this includes the things you have already had forgiven remember the king had already forgiven this man and he brought this man back and he reinstated these debts he brought them right back we, we need to pay attention to that. So you can argue theologically all day long whether or not Jesus, or excuse me, whether or not God the Father can choose to bring debts back. But according to this parable Jesus told, he can. And he will. This is why this is, this is, a, this is not to be played around with or, or treated lightly. And so... We have to be real with ourselves about what this, what this is, what, what this means to, to withhold forgiveness. And we have to examine ourselves regularly to determine whether or not we have any unforgiveness in our hearts towards another. And this is not always an easy thing to discern. But it is a, a very important thing to discern. And I think there are, there are clues. There are fruits, fruit of true forgiveness that you will be able to identify. And there are, there are fruit of true unforgiveness that you'll be able to identify. And so, you know, I'm constantly checking my heart, checking myself on this. And we need to be doing that as well. And if we see even a hint of unforgiveness towards someone, please, I'm admonishing you as I am admonishing myself. Please, I 
urge you, do not ignore that. Do not ignore that. It is, it is way too risky to ignore that according to Jesus, according to what he has taught us. Do not ignore that. And so take action. Listen, th- this, is, this is part of this whole theme of, you know, you've got to let go of your rights. And, and here's where people get this wrong is they think that by holding on to unforgiveness towards someone, they, they are punishing the person. They're holding them to account, making sure that this person is not just getting away with it. That's, that's kind of what we think. Whether you think it consciously or subconsciously, that is what people think. But the reality of this is it's, it's totally in reverse. When we hold on to unforgiveness towards someone, thinking we're going to punish them and hold them to account, we are actually putting ourselves in prison. We are imprisoning ourselves and giving rights over to the tormentors, the torturers. Whether that's going to be in the future for eternity or whether that's going to be now in the spiritual realm and Satan's cohorts know when they have rights to us to torment. This is, this is real and this is not something that we just go home and just forget all about this. No, Jesus stressed and emphasized this. Forgiving one another and having mercy towards one another just as God, your Father, has forgiven you and has extended mercy towards you. So this is one of those things where I would like to go above and beyond of being careful that I am not holding on to unforgiveness. Why would I want to put myself in prison? Look, just this is one of these times where it's, you're allowed to be selfish. Be selfish. Don't want to put yourself in prison. Forgive a person for your own sake if you have to. But do it. Because this is, this is very important to Jesus. This is very important to our Father. Because to take His mercy and forgiveness and then pretty much, it's like a slap in the face. You go and then you demand and judge and require uh, penance from someone or a time of uh, punishment from someone when God has dismissed a much, much greater debt in you. How dare we? How dare we? This is, this is not to be messed around with. We are not to be these. That's, who not, that's not who we are to be. We are to be a people who can forgive. We can let go of our rights and our entitlement, put it to death. Forgive the person who has offended you. It doesn't mean that they haven't done something wrong. That's not what it means. It just means that you choose not to be the judge and hold them to account. God will be the judge. He will hold everything to account. Trust me. He will. But if you take that role from him, it is bad news for you. Do not do that. Please, I urge you. And I see this, I see this slipping under the radar of people. It's like they don't even realize the unforgiveness of which they're holding on to. 
And I, I've seen this paralyze people, like, like literally people developing issues of, you know, crippling arthritis and other things that they, they can, and I've read stories of people being set free from these things when they forgive. It's like that releases them from the prison that they have put themselves into. So let's be, let's be people who reflect our merciful Father in heaven. And when we are offended, when someone offends us or hurts us, and listen, there have been horrific things done to people and many of you. And I am not making light of it or dismissing it or acting like none of those things ever happen. I know that they do. I've, I've, I've experienced enough of life to experience some of these hardships, and I have ministered with many people and have heard stories that I wish I had not heard. But the, the truth and reality of them is it's just mind-numbing that these things happen. And God will not let one of them go unaccounted for. But don't let that backfire on you. Don't think that by withholding forgiveness, you're putting someone else in prison. No, you're putting yourself in prison. Let's, let's let the mercies of God flow freely to us by making sure we forgive. We forgive. You have hurt me, but I forgive you. You have offended me, and I forgive you. You have... You have done something so horrific. It has changed my life forever. And this happens all the time. There are scars that you will not be able to ever forget. And so many people are victim, innocent victims of the evil of this world. And God knows it. He sees you. He sees everything, and he will hold everyone to account. But he has called you to greater things. Because he has forgiven you of all of your offenses towards him, the offenses that have put his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross, those offenses, because he has forgiven those offenses, he is now calling us to do the same. And forgive those who, has, who have offended us. And that is what Paul is talking about when he talks about forgiveness. Well, verse 14 says, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And here Paul gets to the real key that unlocks all of these others by putting on love, all of these other qualities will begin to flow more easily. And not only flow individually, but in, it brings us all into harmony with one another, into unity with one another. As we put on love, 
We put to death these other things and we put on love. All of these things that we're to be putting on become more easy and we begin to be unified and to be able to live in harmony with one another. And that's what Paul is describing here. And the Greek word he uses here is agape. Agape love. This is a benevolent love of mercy and action. This is a benevolent love. This is, this is a love of mercy and action. This is the kind of love that when someone annoys you and offends you, you're able to forgive them and love them. This is the kind of love that when someone has done something very offensive and now they're reaping the consequences for it, this is the kind of love that allows you to take action to help them in their suffering and to extend mercy. Jesus uses the parable of the Good Samaritan to describe this kind of love. When he is describing what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself, that is the story that he uses of the Good Samaritan, the Samaritan who went to this uh, Jewish man. The Jews despised the Samaritans, but he had been robbed, he had been beaten, he was, uh, no one else was helping him, and he extended not only love and mercy, but action to help him in his time of need. And that's the kind of love that Paul is describing here when he uses agape. And Jesus very clearly makes this his new command for his people. And he repeats it several times in in John. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And again, in chapter 15, he says, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And again, in verse 17, this is my command, love each other. And so this was hugely important to our Lord Jesus Christ. And on his heart, moments before his crucifixion, this was on his heart leading up to that, he wanted to get this command across. Love one another. And finally, in verse 15, Paul writes to the Colossians, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. I don't know if you've noticed, but this is the third time that um, Paul has mentioned being thankful. And that is hugely important that we are to learn to be thankful. Um, And he's repeated it. uh, This is the third time now. And so we have been called to a peace that comes from Christ. And we have been called to let that peace from Christ rule in our hearts. And it's a reminder of what um, Jesus had said to us in John 14 and verse 27. He says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. No, do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. There it is right there what Paul is saying about uh, don't Jesus, what Jesus is saying. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And Paul had just said that this is the, uh, the peace of Christ is what should rule in your hearts. And this is uh, what Jesus is talking about, not to let your heart be troubled, not to be afraid. And so what should rule then uh, is Christ's peace. And this, is, this means we, just, we're not, we can't be passive about it. So it doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that troubles, anxiety, fear is not ever going to come. It will. 
but it means not coming under its rule, not allowing it to then rule you and control you to where you're actually making decisions based on this troubledness and anxiety and worry that you have in your heart. And you're actually making decisions based on the fear that you have in your heart. This is one of those times where Jesus is telling us, no, be rebellious against these things. Be rebellious against these things. Do not let these things rule in your heart and rule over you. No, he says instead, pluck them out. Do not let them take root. Get rid of them and put Christ's peace in, in place as what rules your heart. And so there's no room for passivity on this. When we recognize anxiety, when we recognize fear beginning to control and rule in our hearts, we have got to take action. It's not, uh, this is not a time to be passive. We must take action against these things and put them off, dethrone them, and replace them with the peace that Christ has given us and allow that to rule in our hearts. And then finally he ends it with, and be thankful. Be thankful. And that's a great reminder for us all. We have so much for which to be thankful. And uh, it's just, if you're not easily thankful, can I encourage you to do what would be helpful to become thankful? If you're not thankful for your house, you need to go to some places and see some of the ways people are living. Listen, when I went to India, I will never see things the same again. When I saw the poverty and the way some people live in India, but it's not just in India. You can go many places in the States and see the way people are are living. Uh, But we're rich in this country compared to other countries. But my point is, it's very easy for you to adjust your perspective so that you are seeing things more clearly. And that is a healthy thing to do. Go or get online and watch some videos and see the kind of places where people are living. And I, I assure you that will help you to be more thankful for the home that God has given you. Do you complain about your car? Listen, I've got some cars. You can, I've got an old 1999 uh, Nissan Altima that's just kind of not going anywhere because <laughs> it's dead right now. But listen, there's plenty of other places you can go to find out, hey, I've got a car. These people walk for miles just to get drinking water. It is so easy to get your perspective right. If you will do the necessary work to remember why you have so much for which to be thankful. Relationships, forgiveness, just there's just so much. Don't let your heart go any further in an unthankful or... Um, in different state. We should be thankful. And there's so much for which to be thankful. And, and Paul is reminding us three times in this passage to be thankful. All right. We are done. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, great, great meaty stuff in your word. Thank you for feeding us this morning your manna. 
And God, I ask that you would help all of these things that we looked at in your word to be able to sink in, to take root, and to bring forth fruit in our lives. God, may we, do, uh, may we obey your command, Lord Jesus, to love one another and to do it by taking off these things and putting them to death, the things that we need to take off. And instead, in our new resurrected life, we put on these things that you have shown us that we should be putting on. Help us to do that and to do that well and to do that daily. And may it bring pleasure to you, Father. May it be pleasing to your heart when you see us loving one another in these ways. Thank you for giving us each other. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for extending your mercy towards us. And may we choose to do the same towards others. Forgiveness and mercy, that's who we're to be about. That's what we're to be about, just like you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a broadcast from LifePoint Church in Greenville, South Carolina. If this ministry has touched your life in some way, we would love to hear from you. Just visit our website at www.lifepointsc.org for more information. Or, if you prefer to reach us by letter, you can write to us at P.O. Box 27036, Greenville, South Carolina, 29616, USA. Until next time, may God bless you as you continue to follow Him. of my heart I want to see